Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is coming from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All right. Plot twist. (laughs) All right. How you guys doing? Good, good, good. Okay. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist. Some of you did too. Uh, I had some, some of my charismatic friends reach out and be like, hey, you're speaking on Pentecost? I'm like, yeah. They're like, don't screw this up. That's what they said. And I said, I'll do my best. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to talk about uh, this morning. We're going to later. This morning, we're not going to talk about like spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and stuff like that. That's, um, that's advanced learning. We'll get there, okay? Then we'll have workshop. Just joking. We're not. Um, um, some of you are really uncomfortable right now. I'm a little uncomfortable too. Um, here's what we're going to do. Most of the time, Christians read this passage and they think, well, the point of this was super, like, spiritual gifts, um, big miracles had to happen. Incredible things had to happen, like a heavy wind blowing through a closed room and tongues of fire appearing above people's heads because everyone needed to be impressed and know that God was there. Um, that's the same way we tend to talk about miracles. Jesus had to do miracles. Why? Because so people would be like, whoa, he, he's God. You know, like, and, they had to, and, and that somehow the miracles are going to convince people. To think. That is not the point of the miracles. That is not the point of this, of the signs. That is not the point of anything. Um, these things have a reason and a purpose. And their setting is in ancient Judaism. And... The early audience would have received this letter and they would have read it and they would have known exactly what is going on and why this is happening. But most of us today are so disconnected from the mindset of the ancient world that we read stuff like this and we think, wow, isn't that weird? And the ancient people will be like, that's not weird. That was supposed to happen and here's why. And they would get there. Okay, so um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to this morning sort of set the stage for this. I'm going to help us understand what it means for this to happen on this day, on a day called Pentecost. Um, And then, next week we have baptism service, so we're not going to talk about it. The week after, um, we're going to look at the chapter as a whole, and we're going to read it as it would have been read in the first century by a group of people who received it, which is not the same as just, just reading it. It's not the same as one person reading it by themselves. There's a way it would be read, a way it would be... A way it would be received. So we're going to do that. Then we're going to go back and work our way through the actual chapter and look at, like, what exactly is happening here, okay? You with me? So today, um, specifically today, I'm going to teach you the entire Bible up to this moment. In, I got a little more time than first service. I got, like, 35 minutes. I'm going to teach you the entire history of Judaism up to this moment. And when we get here again, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, Oh, well, that makes sense. That's way better than, than it's a magic trick for no reason, okay? So, are you with me? I got, I got really heated this morning. I got really fired up, okay? 
tongues of, tongues of fire kind of thing, okay? Here we go. But in order to do this, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this place, these people. I lift all of this up to you this very moment. Um, I lift up everyone in this room to you. We are your children. We come to you as equals, as brothers and sisters. We all have something to bring to the table. Show us what that is. Show us what we're doing here. Show us the reason that us specifically, this people in, in this formation, exists in this day. Show us why. Um, and bind us together. Help us to exercise the things of your kingdom um, in whatever moment you awaken us to it. Thank you, God. In your name. Amen. Okay, like I said, for most Christians, this is a magic trick meant to wow the people. That is not what is happening. Um, first off, they're gathering on a, on a day, a Jewish festival called Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is not an invention of the Christians. Pentecost is an ancient Jewish festival. Uh, Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks. It is called the Feast of Weeks because it is at the end of a week of weeks. Seven times seven days. So 49 days, it's on the 50th day. That's when it happens. Um, and they would gather on the 50th day, uh, 50th day actually from Passover is what it was. So they just had the Passover not too long ago, 50 days exactly, and then they worked their way up, and here they gathered for Pentecost. It was one of the three required festivals for all male Jews within 20 miles of Jerusalem. All male Jews within 20 miles of Jerusalem had to gather and celebrate Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. Um, Pentecost literally means 50th, so... It's like the guy who named the fireplace. It's not creative. It's just the 50th. Um, and it commemorates the giving of the law at Sinai. This is the whole point of the festival. Um, the Passover celebrates their, the, the, the Passover event that happened in Egypt, and they're freeing from being freed from Egypt. The giving of the law happened next. They went straight to Sinai, and they received the law. The Ten Commandments, right? Um, and sort of the rest of the law. And this is what this is celebrating. Every festival in the ancient world is connected to an event in the life of Israel. Every single one of them. They don't just have random festivals so they can get, get together and have community. They got together to celebrate Passover. They get together to celebrate Feast of Weeks. They get together to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Day of uh, Atonement. They, they get together to celebrate all kinds of Feasts of Trumpets, all kinds of stuff. Um, and they commemorate these things by getting together, sharing a meal, praying specific prayers, doing specific deeds um, as a way of keeping their history alive. And if, if you live in an age before the technology of papyrus and writing, this is one of the ways you keep your, your people alive and your stories alive. So here's what we're going to do. Most of this morning is going to consist of me drawing down a line here, okay? It's not going to be pretty. Get over it. Um, these are handcuffs, by the way, in case you can't figure that out. When they're in Exodus, so here's where it starts. The people are in Exodus. They're in chains, get it? Anyways. So they're enslavement in, in, in Exodus. Um, and it starts here. And they are released from Exodus, from, from uh, the, the, the bonds in Egypt. They're Exodus from Egypt. They are released. And they head straight out to Mount Sinai. It's a mountain and it's some laws on a stone tablet. Now, at Sinai... This is the place where they received, again, the law of God. Um, ancient kings, when they would come into power and have a people, they would 
writes a very long book of laws. These laws were not necessarily things that they would give out and then say, now here, you have to obey all these. The people, sure, they would try to obey them, sure. But the point of the laws was to turn the people into the people that the king thought they should be. Um, The Torah is not any different. The Torah, the point of the law, the Torah, uh, again, which is the Torah is, it's, it's an ancient word that basically means a finger pointing, like that way. The Torah is meant to teach the people how to have basically a temple. That is the point of the Torah. Contrary to what you may have read in the writings of Luther, I think he misunderstood the law. He believed that the law was intended to make you righteous so that you could go to heaven when you die. That is not on the minds of the ancient Israelites. They were not concerned with the afterlife. They were concerned with the world in which they lived and, and, and being fulfilled, uh, fulfilling the covenant and the covenant being fulfilled through them. So this law was meant to lead them to be a people so that they could have their own temple. It was to prepare them for a temple. That's the whole point of it. It's like a crutch that you walk on, you lean on, and it, and it turns you into the people that God wants you to be. It tells different stories. I mean, we could pull out a few of them. There's one of them that says, um, uh, you're not to boil a calf in its mother's milk. And we're like, that is a bizarre law. But if you're an ancient people and you're learning to live how God wants you to live in the world, you're going to look at laws like that, and then you're going to look at another law um, in a different chapter that says, um, if you take the eggs from a bird, don't take the bird as well. Don't eat both. Uh, and you look at this, and you're like, okay, so this is basically when I'm pondering your law and I'm meditating on your law, I'm learning about the world that God is building. And so if I do these things, I'm not respecting life, and I'm not ensuring that life continues. I'm actually taking more than I need and disrespecting the process of a mother giving birth to her children. And if I do this, life will cease. And so the law is intended to turn you into a people. And the whole point of this was so that they could have a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a mobile temple. These were a semi-nomadic people. They're wandering through the wilderness. The wilderness is anywhere where there's not a city, where there is no God that has claimed it and put a city there, basically. That's how they viewed it. So they're in the wilderness, and they have this tabernacle. And they have to build this tabernacle. They have to set it up. Every time they move, they set it back up, and it is the house of God. The the tabernacle is built to exact specifications that were received um, sort of in the law of Moses um, in books like Deuteronomy, where you read it, and you see, like, he was describing, in Leviticus, they're teaching you how to build the temple. Fun fact, uh, the first person ever to be filled with the Spirit was not a preacher. It was not a scribe. It was not a priest. It was not a theologian. It was not Moses. First person to ever be filled with the Spirit of God was an artist so that they could carve and make beautiful the tabernacle. So some of you artists need to hear that. There's a for you. Um, and some of you like pastoral studies people need to hear that. Listen to your artists. Anyways, here we go. Um, the tabernacle was always supposed to be a specific thing. The tabernacle is, is a mobile temple, and a temple um, is a place where heaven and earth come together in one place on the earth, like a portal. Think Wreck-It Ralph entering the video game. Don't think that. Um, so if you picture it sort of like here, if you take that and put it down and you look at it from the top, my terrible sketch of like the holy place. If Actually, there's a bunch of writings that, that are between the First and Second Testament, the Old and the New Testament. Um, there's a bunch of Jewish writings there that, where they talk about the temple and they describe how it was intended to be 
um, the way it's decorated, the symbolism and all of it. It's a, it's a model of the universe. God's universe that God has filled and indwells. And standing at the very center, terrified, is a little man, a human, standing in the middle, in the presence of awe and holiness, to represent God. Any temple in the ancient world that you were to go to, even today you can go visit some of these temples that are still standing. Every ancient temple kind of had the same look and the same function. A giant sort of rectangle space with a general courtyard in the middle, around the sides, and in the middle there's a space and there's a statue standing there. A gi- sometimes a giant one, sometimes a little one. And when you look at this statue, it was carved by the priests, and he breathed life into it, and he placed it there. And when you walk into the temples in the ancient world, in the middle of it, you're going to see what's called the Imago Dei, the image of that God. Human beings, scriptures tell us, are the image of God. And in the temple, there's a person in the center of it, the priest. And he's holy, and he's gone through all these things to make him holy, like he's been ritually washed and baptized and certain clothes have been cleansed and he stands there trembling in the middle in the midst of all the holiness of God, okay? Um, so, this is the tabernacle. This is all of this. Now, uh, eventually the people make it to Jerusalem and they're in Jerusalem and the tabernacle is no longer in their midst. And the reason the tabernacle is no longer in their midst, it's outside the camp. Um, Originally, the tabernacle was created to be in the middle of the people. Um, You have the temple in the middle, and you have the 12 tribes of Israel, sort of like a clock surrounding the temple. And it's made to dwell there because God dwells with his people. And in the middle of the people should be a place where heaven and earth come together, where they're connected to God and they can hear from God. But something happened at Sinai. The people worship the golden calf. And so God tells them, at the center of your gathering is idolatry. I am no longer the center of your gathering. And I'm not going to lie and pretend that I am by allowing my tabernacle to stay in the middle of your people. So we're going to move it outside the tent. We're going to move it outside the the camp. And so now the tabernacle has to move outside the camp because the people are idolaters. and, and, And Yahweh is not the center of their world and their worship. Okay? They're always thinking about other things. And so they watch every day as Moses scarily and trembly walks out of the camp and they gather and they watch him walk out of the camp up to the tabernacle and go in and offer the sacrifices for the people. And they have to watch this from afar. They can't enter in. They're not tabernacling with God anymore. Templing with God. Um, a little farther, we move down. They enter into sort of their promised land. It is Jerusalem. They have a city. Um, David and his army come in. They take it all over. And he says, so one night David is asleep in his palace made of giant stones, and it's beautiful. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he thinks he's kind of distraught because he thinks, I have a palace and a temple of stone, but, but my God is in a tent outside the city, and this isn't right. We should build him a temple. And so ta- David says, we're going to build God, a temple of stone, a permanent place. Everyone else has a place where their God and their world comes together. We need one that is permanent, that says our God gathers here, and we worship God here. And Nathan comes to him, and Nathan says, this is actually, this is a great idea, but you're not going to do this. Your son is going to do this. Um, the son of the king, his name is Solomon. And so Solomon eventually, eventually builds this temple, and even though his dad came up with the idea, he calls it the Temple of Solomon, Whatever. Um, and he calls it that, and it's, it's this grand, huge, amazing thing. And what happens after they build this thing is they, they, 
they gather all the people and the priests and the scribes and they do this ceremony and they christen the temple and they offer sacrifices and suddenly this like cloud, terrifying cloud like descends upon the temple as they saw it. And they're terrified and they're running away from the temple and the priests flee and the priests can't even stand up and they're laying down outside the temple and they're watching sort of what they call the glory of God come down and descend upon the temple. And from that point on, this was their space where heaven and earth came together. It was the only place in all of creation, in all of the cosmos, where a human being and God could be in the same space at the same time and survive. Okay. Eventually, what happens? Um, Idolatry remains at the center of their lives. Um, And according to the writers of Scripture, the way they interpret this is that idolatry caused God to take his hand of protection off of them and the Babylonians to rise up and destroy the temple. Here's my destroyed temple. Um, And they're standing around like, put it out. It fell down. What are we going to do? Now, they're here, and the thing is destroyed, and before this happens, one of the prophets writes, and I saw the glory of God leave the temple. He was gone. And then shortly after, it's destroyed. Um, and it stays destroyed for like 400 years. And they come back, and they finally build another one, and the people are weeping because the glory of God doesn't come back on the temple. But they, they kick into gear anyways, and they're doing the sacrifices, and God's not there. The temple's empty. Eventually, that temple's destroyed, and it's rebuilt. Eventually, Herod, um, the half-Jewish king, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the kings of, of, of Rome, he's half-Jewish, and he wants to be the king of the Jews. He wants to be like David. He wants to be the Messiah. So he rebuilds their temple, and it's amazing, and it's just splendor. But the glory of God never comes down again, and no one ever said, we saw the cloud of God descend. Um, nope. They're... For the entire time that temple stood, it's empty, and they're offering sacrifices, and no one's there. And they're just hoping one day God will come back. And they're praying regularly, crying out, God, come back to our temple. In A.D. 70, that temple is wiped out and destroyed, never rebuilt again. 200 years later, there's a guy named, uh, an emperor named Julian who tries to rebuild it. He gets the foundations laid, and then he gets struck by a spear randomly one day and dies, and it never gets finished. The temple has never been rebuilt since. Um, This has always been the great cry of the people. We need our temple. We need the glory of God to come down and dwell with us. So some of you are like, what does this have to do with Pentecost? You'll see. Um, So here we are. We have two temples. We have a tabernacle, and we have a temple. So the things that bind these things together, um, the the sort of, the, the, the characteristics that they share are... Humans scarily standing at the center of them. Um, a borderland between heaven and earth. The only place that is like the borderland where they come together. Um, God dwelling amongst his people there, living and tabernacling with his people around him. Uh, and things go terribly wrong for both of them. The tabernacle can't be in the camp because the people are idolaters. The... Uh, the temple is destroyed because the people are idolaters. And it's just, eventually God just stops coming into the midst of the people. Um, the question is, where have we heard this story before? Well, at the very beginning of scriptures, there's a story of a garden and two people. It is the story of Adam and Eve. And what Genesis 1 through 3 is, it's a foretelling of the story that you are about to read in the rest of the text. The authors are saying, let's make them familiar with the story before they read the story. Let's give them a story they can tell through their children that will make sense of of where they find themselves in exile. 
And so in Adam and Eve, in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, there's human beings, but they're actually not scarily standing with God. They're like friends, and they're walking and they're talking daily, walking in the garden, having conversations. And then there's this, it is the borderland between heaven and earth. The garden has a border, an edge, like a temple. <clears throat> and they are created there, put there, the breath of life breathed into them and placed in the middle. So all of creation can look at them and see exactly what God is like. And it's God dwelling among his people. And what happens? Things go terribly wrong. They do exactly the thing they're not supposed to. They're given things to eat from, and they want to eat from something else, another life source. They're usurping the throne of God, saying that they know better, and they eat it, and they are exiled. And the early readers of Scripture, and modern readers of Scripture too, and I, this is one of the gifts I want to give to you, is like when you read this story, you are right then reading the story before you read the story. So that when you see it, you will recognize it. I don't like to dumb down Genesis by saying, oh, it's telling you how you got here. It is telling you what you are doing here. It is telling you how the world tends to function, including the people of God. Um, It's a telling of Israel's story, telling the whole thing before you actually read it. Adam and Eve are a foretaste, an allegory of Israel and the promised land and how it ends in exile over and over and over again. Then comes the great crisis, the destruction of Israel, that is them being cast out of the garden, and there's no longer a connection. And here's the thing. If the temple is the place where heaven and earth sort of come together in this way, that means God's presence is dependent upon a physical location and a building and a structure. Without the tabernacle, there's nothing. Without the temple, there's nothing. So when the temple is destroyed, that connection is severed. And the people have a crisis. They're in Babylon. They can't get to their temple. Their temple's not even standing anymore. It's burnt down. They have no way to connect with God. Nothing. Other than the words of the prophets speaking to them. There's no way for them to communicate with God. And so they're in exile. They're like, what are we going to do? Well, let's write down our story for our children. Because one day our children are going to go back and they're going to rebuild the temple. And they're going to want to know how to live like God's people. They need to be prepared for one day when they get a temple. So for 450 years, these people are in exile. And they're writing their stories. And they're telling their stories to their children. They're saying, this is important. Because you're going to one day find yourself back there again when we fully repented. And you're going to build a temple. And you're going to need to know how to be God's people for when God enters into your midst again. This is what this is about. And so while they're doing this, these prophets arise, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and they have messages for the people who are planning another physical temple somewhere. You have to have a physical temple. Otherwise, there's no, there's no connection with God. So Isaiah rises up, and Isaiah, he stands up, and he starts talking about this whole other thing that God is going to do, a whole other way of being a temple, a whole other way of God dwelling among his people. He says, forget the former things, the temple. Forget that. Dwelling on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. When you, when you talk about making a way in the wilderness, and he's talking about God connecting with his people again, by saying I'm making a way in the wilderness, you're saying this is not going to be a building. Because what is the wilderness? It is a place where there is no city and nobody lives there. Nobody owns it. And if there's no city, then there's no buildings, then there's no temple, and God's got to have a building, a temple, or God can't be there. And Isaiah's saying, no, no, God told me that he's going to do something different, a whole new way of entering into the world, okay? And then this guy, Ezekiel, he writes, and he says, I heard someone speaking. Okay, hold on, a little background. Ezekiel, the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel are Ezekiel's vision of this new kind of temple as well. 
him and Isaiah kind of have these, these, these visions, these ideas. He's got this thought that like, no, that there's going to be another temple, but it's not going to look like that. It's going to be different. And he says, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple that he's been describing for like three chapters already. And he said, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. And this is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings. So they're going to be given something that cannot be defiled, something that's going to be righteous and good, and it's going to stay that way. Uh, and then near the end of his description, he says, and the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. So that city is going to be wherever the Lord is. That's where the building is going to be. So no longer is the Lord dependent on the building. The building is dependent on the Lord and where he goes. And these things are changing the minds of the people. And it's shifting how they describe everything. And so we go back to Acts chapter 2. What have we already seen? Well, we studied the book of Matthew for three years. And what we see in the book of Matthew, and it's the same thing you see in the book of Luke, the author of Acts. The same thing you see. Jesus is that temple. Jesus is the temple. And everything that the temple does, everything it's supposed to do, we find Jesus doing. And we find Jesus alone doing these things, and nobody else is doing them outside the people in the temple. So Jesus is forgiving sins. That's why the Pharisees are like, that's blasphemy. That happens in the temple. We're over here in Podunk Town. You can't forgive people here. The structure's over there. You have to go there to have sins forgiven. And Jesus is like, nah, I got this. You're forgiven. And they're like, that's blasphemy. He's like, nah, I'm the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days, it'll rise again. And they're like, you're going to destroy the temple? He's like, one day you'll get this. Just write it down and read it later. So Jesus is forgiving sins. He's healing people. That happened in the temple. He's reconciling people. He's telling people, you're clean. You were diseased. I pronounce you clean. This is the job of the priest. And he's got a cousin who's just as rebellious. His name is John. And he's baptizing people not in the temple, in the Jordan River. As if to say, I need you to leave the temple. Come down here and we're going to baptize you here and give you a new start. We're going to enter into this temple new. And you're going to follow this guy, Jesus. He's giving them. They are like revolutionaries redefining this entire thing. And so Jesus is that thing. However, Jesus is arrested by these people who are threatened by him and his teachings and his power. And they arrest him and they kill him. They torture him and they crucify him. And if the, if the place where God connects is physical and Jesus dies, then that connection is severed. It's gone. And so for three days, the world is once again in exile without a place where heaven and earth come together. This is why on the cross, Jesus cries out, and praise the prayers of exile. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the exact same prayer that the, that, the, that the Jewish people prayed when they were taken into Babylon. Because they felt God had abandoned his people and let his own temple be destroyed. He didn't want to be here anymore. He left. He, he, he left. Why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus is letting them know, I am the temple. You are destroying me. You are once again going into exile. Okay. Three days later, there's this resurrection and there's this ascension that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And after this ascension, we come to the day of Pentecost and suddenly 
God enters into his people again in this whole new way. And the church suddenly becomes the realization of Isaiah and Ezekiel. The church becomes the place where heaven and earth come together. They didn't expect this. They never understood this when it was talked about. They didn't know how it was going to function. But they're in this room, and there's this wind, and there's this fire, and there is everything that we have seen when the glory of God comes upon the temple. And everything we've seen when God gathered them at Sinai. Everything we've seen in the desert when God is leading them with fire and cloud. Everything is there. What this means is that the church is the temple, that this new thing has come. The church is the temple. I mean, look at the timeline. Okay, this is the best. Okay, this is, this is, this is the, the peak of the whole thing, right? Ready? Are you ready? Look at this. You have how many people gathered on Pentecost in that room around that table? Twelve. Twelve. Just like at the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people and the twelve tribes of Israel. So twelve Jewish boys, like the sons of Israel, are gathered here around this table and God says, perfect timing, let's go. And the, the, the Spirit of God falls down in the middle of all of them, and the temple is reborn without a building, without a structure, but there. Everything they have ever wanted or needed, the temple is now mobile. It can reproduce, it can grow, it can go in other places. We can begin to connect the world with God everywhere that this group of people goes. And they can raise up other leaders to teach these things and know the understandings of Jesus. And they're going to write them down and give them. This is the launch of the entire process. The, 12, the gathering of Israel around their king. The redefining of the whole thing. This is what Christianity is. The church was never intended to be a big show to motivate you and make you feel good. It was always supposed to be the people of God are the image of God in this world, and they are placed here in the temple so that when people look at us, um, they know what God looks like. They know what God sounds like and hugs like and serves like. They know God by looking at us because we are the gathering that is the body of Christ. This is why Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of God? When I was a kid... This was something my grandma always told me to convince me not to get tattoos. <laughs> Fail. There's literally <laughs> nothing that has nothing to do with you as an individual being the temple of God. This is collective communal language. The people of God, the church are the, are the body of Christ. The temple. Jesus was the temple. We're the body of Christ. We're the temple. Now, the big question in this whole passage is, why now? Why Pentecost? It's been 50 days. Couldn't Jesus have just done this there? What are we waiting for? To understand this, you have to keep it in the Jewish mindset of the festivals. What were we celebrating at Pentecost? The giving of the law at Sinai. What was the point of the law? You have to ask all the questions. What was the point of the law? The point of the law was to train the people to receive a temple so that they could be the people of God and effectively have a place where God, where the heaven and earth come together. The prayer has always been that heaven would come down to earth. So the whole point of coming on Pentecost was to say, hey, you're celebrating the giving of the law. I'm giving you a new law. I'm giving you the law again. But it's not a law of paper that you need to read 
and follow. It's going to be a law that is written on your hearts. And you are now a people that are no longer led by writings. You are led by the Spirit of God. And this is the part that my charismatic friends wanted me to emphasize. Um, there tends to be a lot of thought that like today, like, no, we're, we're led by the Bible. We're led by this and that. And I, it's the Bible's, I'm a Bible scholar. This is what I do. I love the Bible. The Bible is not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Bible tells us that. It says Jesus is the word of God. He's the final message that God has for us. Look at Jesus and you'll know. And we learn about Jesus from studying the scriptures. Um, but Jesus is also alive and speaking now. And the Baptists are freaking out now. And Jesus is speaking and the spirit is present and the spirit is leading. And God's people were always intended to be led by that spirit in the same way that the Jewish people were led by that law. And they would read the law and they would ponder the law. We are to somehow learn to read the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing and move along in that direction as Jesus was led by the Spirit, sometimes into the wilderness, sometimes to a specific city as the early church was led to different cities. This is how we are to be led by the Spirit, with prayer and discernment and all of this working together. Why? Because the Spirit is the law, and the point of the law is to prepare us for the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom of God, to be a temple that will stand in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not some afterlife thing. It is now we are citizens of this kingdom. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is how we exist. We have returned to Sinai, but instead of laws written on paper, we have received the laws on our hearts. It will lead us to the promised land. It will lead us towards the promised land, um, all of us. And God is going to lead his church towards new creation. God is making the world different through his church by healing, uh, by their healing, by acts of mercy, and by the way that they begin to live. And also, because we are speaking the languages of the world. And there's a hint. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. But this is the whole thing. I mean, this is what God was doing the whole time. Giving us a temple so that God is connected with earth, but now he's giving us more and more and more. It is this mobile thing. We are the temple, the church. Again, whatever your misconceptions are, how you grew up with what, what your understanding of the church was, um, this has been one of the most diminished teachings because we ignore the Jewish mindset. We don't want to listen to it. This is how the early Jewish Christians understood their job in this world. When people look at us, they should see God. When we gather, we are connecting the world to God. We are the place where when we gather together, the world is connected to God. And we are bringing people in, reconciling. We're making space. We're creating, giving more chairs to bring people in to understand who, king, who the king is. It's Jesus, who God is. Like all of this. This is why, and once you see this, you'll see it everywhere, um, this communal body language. If you turn to the book of, of Hebrews chapter 10, um, um, what the author of Hebrews is saying, not Paul, Phoebe, um, what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10, pay attention to this, here we go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, what is the most holy place now? It is the church, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. It's not stones, it's a church. It's living. That is his body. Red lights flashing. It's the church. It's, it's you. Um, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith, this Greek word for allegiance, faith, the full assurance that faith brings, having our bodies washed with pure water. This is baptism. Remember, last week we talked about baptism. 
The reason people were baptized in the ancient world was so they could, so they could be adopted from one family and be born again into another family. This is now your tribe, your family, and you're baptized into this thing. One family now. One loyalty, okay? Um, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And they would look at this and they would say, yes, he is faithful. Look at the ways, like the law, the tabernacle, the temple, um, exile, temple, exile, temple, Jesus, church. And they're looking back like, yeah, Jesus, God has never ceased to be faithful to us. He's always intended, and he's kept adjusting and adjusting and adjusting till, until we finally open our eyes and get it, what we're doing here. And God is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. This is why we gather together. You are not a church when you go by yourself and read the Bible. You are not a church. You are not the presence of God. You can have the Spirit of God with you, and you can ask God. I pray that when people look at me, they would see you. It's all great and valid, but when we gather together, we are the temple. Christians have to gather together and retell the story over and over and over because people need to hear it. And just like there were, there were people in the ancient world that wanted to become Jews because their temple was amazing and, hot and life-giving, people need the message of Jesus. This is what they need. This is what God is doing. The church, the gathering, is not for entertainment or inspiration for the people. It's the temple. It's the ga- we gather, we confess sins, we forgive sins, we baptize each other, we set each other apart as a new people in this world who live differently than everyone around us, and we're spurring each other on to, to love and good deeds and encouragement and all of this. Now, the simplest way for me to describe what the church is is not all of this. It's, it's for me. So I, my, my kids are all under 10, and they... They love playgrounds and they love monkey bars. And I, and I think about them playing on the monkey bars a lot. They're growing up fast and you kind of look at them and you're like, man. Um, and you try to remember like what it was like to be their age. And I have this specific memory of being about probably this tall. I think it was like five or six. And trying to reach the monkey bars. I wanted to reach the monkey bars because if you could reach, if you could reach the monkey bars. I, I used to see these kids play on the monkey bars, these older kids, these teenagers that were so cool. And they would climb up on top and they would sit on top and dwell like they were the king of the playground. And they were in my eyes. They were the king of the playground because they were on top. And I knew that if I could just jump up and get one hand on a monkey bar, I could pull up and elbow and armpit and shoulder and then, and then chest and like I could get my knees up and I could get on top. I could get my whole self present on top of the monkey bars and I could do that if I could get one hand on the monkey bars. Okay. The church is God's hand on the monkey bars. That is the easiest way I can describe this. This is how God is entering into the world. It is you. If you're wondering what God's great plan is to fix all the broken stuff everywhere and you're sitting around and you're waiting, you're it. And it may be terrifying, but God has equipped us and the Spirit is present and the Spirit is leading us. And he's asking us to keep in the center because idolatry is everywhere. It's present in our own midst all the time. And all the ways that we wake up and we follow other kings and we walk away from one Lord, one kingdom. This is what Acts 2 is. In the first four verses, we have just fulfilled the entirety of scriptures. The temple has just come back. You are the temple. And everything moving forward will be looked at through this eye. And the temple of Jesus will rub up against temples of the world in Rome, 
uh, in Jerusalem, and it will not go great. But in the end, more churches will be planted, and the kingdom of God will do amazing things that will last 2,000 years to this very moment here today. And so why don't we take communion with all of this on our minds? Our communion service, you guys can go and um, get the elements and spread around the room. The, uh, the communion table is open for you. Um, it is the invitation of Jesus. It is the center of the table that we gather around. It is the body and the blood of Christ, the, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for your salvation, to free you from your bonds in Egypt, to free you from all of the loyalties and allegiances that you already have and to show you another way, a way that actually is how God enters into the world. And so let's pray for ourselves. Let's spend time in repentance. Let's pray for our church. Let's pray for God's temple to be present here with us, that we would keep God at the center of it. Um, and whenever you are ready, you come on up and take a piece of bread, dip it in the glass and, and eat it. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, if you need prayer, we'll have somebody up here to pray with you. Um, I don't think there's anybody in the back today, but we'll have somebody here to pray with you and then uh, spend some time in prayer. And uh, we have one more song at the end. So let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Fashion us into your image. I pray that we would uh, display you adequately and beautifully that we would have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that we would be a people who are gentle, a people who are loving and kind, a people who stand up uh, in the face of evil boldly with loving eyes, um, and who do the right thing no matter what it costs, who allow ourselves to be broken and poured out as you did. Help our lives to take on the shape of your cross and be crucified. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.